Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Harris. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And Noah, I love this bookstore. It's an institution. It's famous everywhere. I've been traveling and everyone knows about it. And thank you to Noel. If, you if you're not familiar, uh, and I'm sure some of you are, Noel's a wonderful, wonderful novelist. Talking to the Moon and Letters uh, to Mon from Montgomery Clift are beautiful, beautiful works. Um, so. Uh, this is my hood, so this is super special because this is like, I feel like this is sort of a hipster rite of passage to be at this place. Uh, do I have any snot on my face? Because uh, no. I just blew my nose on a post-it. Okay. okay. <clears throat> um, the book, as Noel said, is a collection of essays and stories and memories and glimpses. It's not linear. Uh, uh, it's all over the place, childhood, adult, uh, showbiz, celebrity, dadhood, everything. And so I've been traveling all over, also doing a show called Ham, uh, which we're going to be doing here in March at the Renberg Theater, and I hope you all come. It's, a real, it's become a real theater piece. It's something I'm very excited about. So I've been traveling doing the show and readings and press for the book, but tonight... I wanted to also pick a few things that I haven't been doing regularly because I think of you as better than other people. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to offer so. Um, instead of talking about the book, I think I'll just give you some uh, pieces, a mousse-bouche, if you will. Um, this is from a chapter called Odd Man Inn. I don't really need these. They just give me an authorial look. I just want... <clears throat> I spent my wonderless years in the small town of Sand Springs, Oklahoma, peculiarly named as there is neither sand nor springs anywhere in the area. But the name Red Clay Dirty River doesn't roll off the tongue quite so trippingly. Sand Springs was Americana, grassroots, and boasted the title Industrial Capital of the Country, home to more manu manufacturing plants per capita than anywhere else in the USA. All the pollution of a big city without a single perk. <laughs> My father was the band director at Charles Page High School in our little town, and by the time I was a toddler, he had become somewhat famous in the tri-state area for his marching band style, which incorporated a heart-stopping goose step that brought the crowds to their feet. He was the go-to guy for students and parents alike, the favorite teacher, the giver of advice, and source of encouragement. I rarely saw him but for weekends when he would mutely seclude himself in the dark watching sports on television. 
Mothers were for raising children. Having a high school band director for a father, however, did have its advantages. I was only two when he plunked me in front of a microphone at a football game and I sang an iron-lunged, on-pitch, star-spangled banner to the cheers of the stadium. I hit the jackpot at age five when I got to play little Jerome de Beck, one of the two mixed-race Polynesian bastard children in the Charles Page High School production of South Pacific. I wore a flowered loincloth, full body paint, Max Factor Egyptian tan number five, and eye makeup that looked more like Agnes Moorhead in Bewitched than anyone remotely Polynesian. On opening night, I made my entrance from up left in all my Polynesian bastard child glory, hand in hand with Dee Dee Shields, who played my sister, ready to slay them with the song Dites-moi in real French. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, in the prior scene, one of the actors had dropped a drinking glass which had shattered all over down center. As we began the song, Dee Dee and I walked barefooted toward the audience and after only one verse, I stepped onto a shard of broken glass which drove straight up into the arch of my foot. I felt the hot bite of penetration and looked down to see a pool of blood spreading around my feet on the mottled wooden floor. I gasped and a voice from within spoke loud and clear, some five-year-old version of Suck it up, Harris, you're in show business. <laughs> I lifted my chin as Dee Dee glanced down and screamed. I squeezed her hand like a vice, a warning, then smiled at the audience and finished the song alone as Dee Dee wept. <laughs> the applause was better than first aid. I loved the purpose and the drama, and I knew Dee Dee would never make it in show business. The next scheduled production was The Miracle Worker. I became fixated with six-year-old Helen Keller. Anyone with that many handicaps was not only captivating and heroic, but could relate completely to the tribulations of the human spirit, just like me. Because of my triumph in South Pacific, I was certain I would land the role of Helen. I began staggering about the house with a dish towel tied around my eyes and toilet paper stuffed in my ears to simulate blindness and deafness. One morning, my mother had had it. Take that rag off your head and eat like a person. Helen Keller was a person. How could you say that? You're not Helen Keller. I could be if they give me a chance. My father entered and exited with one sentence ripping the cloth from my eyes. Take off the goddamn rag and eat your goddamn pancakes and don't talk to your goddamn mother that way. <laughs> On the day of tryouts for the miracle worker, I begged to go, even though I'd been told that a part was being given to me. I had other plans. I walked confidently onto the auditorium stage, and friendly voices welcomed me from the darkened house. Sam, you didn't need to come, said Miss Young, the drama teacher and director. We already know you're playing Percy. But I, I wanted to come. I want to read for Helen. Read for Helen. Helen didn't have any lines. <laughs> but I was prepared to 
stare blankly forward with my eyes slightly crossed and bump into furniture. <laughs> they didn't even attempt to stifle their titters, which quickly grew into full-out patronizing, <laughs> isn't that cute, and strange guffaws. Despite my pleading logic, I didn't get to bump into anything. I was cast instead in the tiny, silent, and pajamaed role of Percy, a little Negro child who mostly slept. I couldn't understand how they could see me as a Polynesian child and a Negro child, but insisted on casting a non-child in the most important part. The girl who played Helen Keller was 16 years old, gangly with full-on breasts, and somehow managed to wah-wah with a southern accent. <laughs> Dreadful. I knew she wouldn't make it in show business either. <laughs> my disappointment was not discussed at home. But after a few days, I heard my name called with a tone that I knew meant my dad had been inspired to offer fatherly, sage advice, which would fit perfectly into a commercial break from the game. Turn down the TV, he said. I knew this must really be important. When the room was silent, he pulled back the handle on his recliner, rocketing him to an upright position. Son. He leaned forward and paused to shuffle a cigarette up from the pack, grip it in the corner of his mouth, and light it with a zippo. Life. He snapped the lighter shut with an emphatic clink and took a long draw, letting the smoke fill every cell of his lungs, then finally exhaled, slowly, deliberately, until the last foggy fume was purged. Is a bowl of shit. <laughs> he took another puff and tilted his head, squinting for emphasis, and then through the exhale, and we just stir it up. He let the words hang in the air alongside the smoke, then turn the TV back up. I did, and the baseball game resumed as he jutted himself back in his recliner, and I returned to the private world of my portable turntable and practiced my autograph. <laughs> <laughs> um, this next piece, I'm working from so many medium, uh, the book, the, the show, a little abridged, and then this piece, uh, uh, which is in the book, but I printed it out. It's from a chapter called Liver, which I'll explain later. I have a new, I love this, this is so much fun for me, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I have a new fancy washer and dryer. They are front-loading, bacteria-killing, uber-environmentally-efficient space-age works of uncommon art. They have hundreds of options for every possible fabric in the world. You could wash and dry the shroud of Turin in these things and it would be guaranteed safe. There are knobs and buttons and digital amber lights and delightful little bell tones that ping with each selection like the sound of an idea, assuring that you have made a good and apparently very happy choice. When the dirty clothes are placed in the washer, the door seals shut like a vault. No, oops, I found another pair of underwear to toss in. All decisions are final. There is serious work to be done, and it begins with a sequence of scientific evaluations. The washer drum tumbles the clothes for a moment, then back the other way. Then it weighs the contents to determine the exact proper length of each upcoming cycle for this exact particular collection of garments. Then it stops again and thinks, 
You can feel it thinking because it's doing nothing, so it must be thinking. I imagine it analyzing the fabrics. Cotton, wool, silk, lycra, lurex, nylon, rayon, velvet, mikado, crinoline, chiffon, bombazine, spandex, chambray, crepe, duvetine, rumshunder, tweed, twill, vicuna, grass, hemp, jute, hundreds of options. I have no rumshunder and wouldn't be caught dead in bombazine, but I appreciate the technology. After a few empirical, apprehensive moments, the washer has specified the most minuscule amount of water necessary to wash the clothes and save the planet at the same time. It spritzes a fine mist so as not to surprise or shock the clothes. Then it tumbles again, then back the other way. Then it thinks again. Then it spritzes with a little more pressure. Then a sudden, brisk spit. After half an hour of thinking and spritzing and spitting, the silent drum begins to turn with more frequency, slowly at first, so as not to make the clothes dizzy. And then it commits to actual water, or at least the sound of water, because you don't actually ever see water, and it could be another audio accessory like the idea pinging. It is so environmentally conscious that it can wash a large load of jeans with what appears to be little more than a tablespoon of water. As the washer turns, glowing lights fade up from within so that the proud owner can watch the entire hour-long exhibition from start to finish. I have. With popcorn. At the end of the final spin cycle, it plays a happy, larkish eight-bar song. It is a merry tune, which brings to mind images of pan cavorting down a path in mountain wilds and glens. The internal lights dim. Act one is over. The dryer is equally theatrical and scientific, and it is so quiet that if you didn't actually see the clothes occasionally plopping around between thoughts, you wouldn't know it was on. Until the end, that is, when it offers its own ducky ditty in the same key as the washer. Once, in a miraculous moment of two-load timing, the washing cycle ended just before the drying cycle was completed. It was practically a concert, and I nearly applauded. There is one downside to the new washer and dryer. They suck. The clothes are not clean. And no matter how small the dryer load, everything comes out wrinkled and somehow wet. Our 10-year-old top-loading Whirlpool com combo contraption had worked perfectly fine. The wash cycle was appropriately known as agitating. It didn't pussyfoot around. It was agitated. It shook and banged, and the final cycle ended not with a song, but with a ratchety, mechanical clanking that grinded to a halt with a final constipated grunt. I'm done, it bellowed in no uncertain terms, and your clothes are fucking clean. The new dynamos are fool's gold. Charlatans. Imposters the frank abagnale of appliances. And yet, I hang on, convincing myself that this load came out a little cleaner, brighter, drier, that everything will be better. And then I recognize there is a familiar pattern here. I have often found myself blinded by what could be, should be, rather than seeing what is. I hear the happy song at the end of the spin cycle and block out the encroaching death march. It is frustrating and confusing because despite ample evidence to the contrary, my indefatigable tenacity, high hopes, and steadfast grit has proved winning in so many cases. 
I've always believed that the light at the end of the tunnel is not an illusion. The illusion is the tunnel itself. But then there's that old saying that the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. Both are possible, I suppose. For this reason, I have been forced to come up with a checkpoint for my life, a simple barometer of sorts, something I call the liver law. The liver law is basic. Liver is liver. You can throw on a little bacon, add some onions, but it's still liver. And then the ch this chapter goes on to talk about all the liver in my life, all the career liver, all the relationship liver, all the things that I keep holding on to. And, and it's going to be seeing the, the tiniest, tiniest piece of sunlight in an otherwise dark and gloomy world. And I keep hanging on. And so, but that's my little opening to liver. And then you can read all the horrors of my life. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, this is a piece that I've not read out loud except when I did the audiobook. And um, I've got a, I'm schwitzing a little. Um, Noelle mentioned something about my mentor. And, uh, and uh, when I was 19, I met a man named Jerry Blatt, who became my writer and my director. Uh, my teacher, my uh, father figure, my friend, he, he taught me to find the extraordinary in the ordinary and see the world as art. He gave me a perspective about the way I looked at everything and my performing. He helped me hone the persona of the little white boy from the sticks with a big black voice. And he taught me to tell the truth on the stage. He was the largest, the biggest influence in my entire life. And there's a chapter called Crash, Crash Course, which is about my relationship with Jerry. Oh, and his crazy, crazy partners slash lovers slash appendage, um, Sean, who was Looney Tunes, probably from the festival of drugs that he had taken during his life. He was missing important teeth. Um, but he could do a dead-on impersonation of a Shasta Daisy that could just no comparison. Sean had this big, you couldn't see his teeth missing because he had this broomish mustache that always, always had uh, the remnants of his last meal. And not crumbs, you know, I'm talking like leftovers, like everything was, anyway, I, 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 I don't want to get lost on Sean. Jerry was extraordinary. And for 10 years, he was the protector, creator, teacher uh, for my life. This is the end of, near the end of that chapter. When Jerry was diagnosed with AIDS in 1988, he and Sean moved to an apartment they had taken on a picturesque canal in Amsterdam. He was writing a movie for Disney that was to star Bette Midler, and the disease was so mired in taboo that he was afraid he'd be fired if they found out, if anyone found out. Bette, her husband Harry, and her business partner Bonnie, along with me and my partner Ed, were the only ones who were privy to the shameful secret. We flew to Amsterdam several times to see him, swearing to keep quiet, even when it came to our closest mutual friends. As autumn descended into winter, each trip was a progressive snapshot of a weaker, more aged, insufficient Jerry. I had to get AIDS to get a jawline and cheekbones, he joked, grinning from his hospital bed. I could not show my grief to him 
nor Sean, nor anyone back home. So from Amsterdam, I found myself traveling to Auschwitz-Birkenau for some sort of cruel sanctuary to experience the concentration camp in the biting opiate cold at its worst. Anything green would have seemed wrong. The camp was oddly unsupervised, and I saw only two other visitors, as silent as the white dead sky. I wandered throughout the desolate place, row after exacting row of rotting bunkers among a geometric landscape of teetering brick chimneys rising like Legos from naked cement foundations. I found the exact spot in front of the train tracks where boxcars of unsuspecting Jews and other outcasts had arrived for selection and sat on the frozen ground among footprints petrified like muddy fossils left from tourists on warmer days. I lay in a bunk that was cramped even by myself with oddments of stubborn straw poking up from between the wooden planks. In the museum, photos of skeletal prisoners with lifeless eyes looked too much like Jerry. But that's why I'd come, I supposed, for the injustice. Several weeks later, on January 18th, Sean called me in Los Angeles at 4 a.m. and simply said, it's almost time. I got the first flight out of L.A. to New York to London to Amsterdam and rushed to the hospital. But I missed Jerry's passing by an hour. For nearly a decade, he had been there for me at every important moment of my life, and I had failed to be there for his last. A doctor led me to a strikingly white room where a gauzy lemon haze of sunlight formed a trapezoid through a single window. Jerry would have totally loved the light and that I noticed it. In the center of the room was a waist-high wooden slab of birch or ash or beech. Jerry lay on top, covered with a sheet as white as the walls. He didn't have his glasses on and it seemed wrong. I would need to find his glasses. Sean insisted that Barry, Jerry be laid to rest in their newly adopted country, and we were joined by Jerry's mother and father and sisters and Bet later in the day. He was buried the next morning in a Jewish cemetery dotted with lopsided headstones dating back to the 18th century, etched with weathered Dutch names like von Hefwegen and Klerks. It was surreal, like some kind of foreign period piece indie film. The air was sad. Black naked trees reached down like knobby knuckled arthritic fingers. Six pallbearers dressed in formal gray tails with gloves, spats, and top hats silently carried the pine casket in procession as a bell heavily tolled over and over again. And over and over again. And over and over and over again. We walked behind the casket, led by Sean, who had planned the whole thing with the funeral director like a Dutch Jackie Kennedy. His mustache revealed a breakfast of sukerbrod with hazelslag and hot chocolate with slog room. <laughs> what the fuck is this? came a voice from behind me. It was Jerry's 70-ish mother. Stop with the bell already. At graveside, Bet sang, I think it's going to rain today. And I sang the boat song, which Jerry and I had written together. Both had been requested by him, or so Sean said. 
I didn't believe Jerry ever acknowledged he was going to die, so I couldn't imagine him making funeral plans, much less this version. It was all too maudlin and just too Dutch. The only thing remotely Jerry was the headstone, which Sean had had engraved with a line Jerry wrote for one of Beth's shows. Did I sing the ballad yet? Was I wonderful? Memorials were planned to celebrate Jerry in Los Angeles and then New York. New York would be the most important. It was Jerry's city and his people. The actor's playhouse was the venue, a few short blocks from the apartment on Bleecker that Jerry had rented since the 60s. Bed and I and a few others arrived early to place flowers, the piano, a podium, and the screen for the slideshow. When nothing was left to be done, there was still time to spare and I was anxious and needed an activity. I looked down and noticed that the carpeting was nubby. I found a pair of scissors in the box office and began crawling on the the floor, row by row, seat by seat, snipping clots of carpet. I knew it was stupid and fairly pointless, but it was the kind of thing Jerry would have done. Lost in my own world, my head suddenly bumped against something. I looked up and it was Bet. We were nose to nose. She had a pair of scissors and was crawling on the floor, row by row, seat by seat, snipping clots of carpet. We smiled at the improbability and, of coarseness, of the moment. I wanted to believe in an afterlife where Jerry was laughing at the extraordinary and the ordinary. One way or the other, he had trained us well and we were both products of his neuroses. That night, After the memorial and the family get-together at the mandatory Chinese restaurant on 7th Avenue, Sean, Jerry's sister, Cynthia, Bruce, and I went to the apartment to recover and reminisce. I felt blank. Jerry's influence and friendship was so large that I couldn't find specific memories. There was no place to begin. I couldn't get past the end. His gaunt face the bizarre Dutch funeral, and more than anything, that I wasn't there for his death, that I had missed the moment. At about two in the morning, a scream of sudden breaks and the squeal of skidding tires were followed by a metallic crash that broke our reflection, but no one moved. We were spent. It was New York. Things happen. Then I found myself racing down the stairs and out onto the street. The accident was bad. The car was buckled around a street light, which was a kilter but still illuminating the scene. The warped passenger door fell open and a man covered in blood, probably in his 30s, crawled out slowly and fell to the street. I ran to him and, with the help of another man, carried him a few feet to the small set of stairs at the entrance of the corner building. His head was a pincushion of tiny shards of glass and blood streaked his face and hair like red ink. There were no visible major wounds and he was breathing fine if not talking. Someone called an ambulance and a small crowd gathered, but no one with any medical knowledge came forward, so I sat with him on the stairs. He edged himself up and lay splayed across my lap and I wrapped my arms around his chest. And then he died. There was no gasping last breath or final wisdom-filled declaration, no 
fluttering of the eyelids or clawed outstretch of hand, no moan or even the raising of his chest for a last releasing exhalation. He just died. I remained with him until the ambulance came and then I went back upstairs covered in the blood of a stranger and remembered Jerry. Are we done? Do we have time for one more? Should we do? Yes? We can do one more? Yes. Really? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> Come to the show. I sing my took us off. Okay, this is... Um, this is from a chapter called Better. Um, as Noel said, some of the stories in here about my childhood growing up in rural Oklahoma in the Bible Belt and coming to terms with, my, uh, with being gay, uh, a teenage suicide attempt. Um, uh, there's a lot of funny in the book, as he said, but it does go to certain uh, places. And just sort of finding my way in that time, in that generation, when there were no role models, there was nothing, there was no one. And uh, the, what we have uh, seen in this, in, during the period of my lifetime, and so this is... Uh, part of the chapter from, uh, it's the last chapter of the book. Ten years into my relationship with Danny, our Saturday morning tradition was that we would go to our neighborhood farmer's market where vendors from all over California set up tented stands on a narrow street bookended by a latte cafe and a bicycle shop to sell organic produce and artisanal goat cheese and herbs and honey and hummus and flowers. Old Eddie Dredd sits on a fold-out stool and plays the conga while he sings homespun songs about sunny days at the marketplace in his scraggy, chapped voice. Neighbors shop and congregate, and kids' stained faces tattle of pilfered blueberries. The place is Eden with a nose ring. You've been to it, right? It's very... <laughs> My recurring Saturday morning fantasy was that Danny and I would one day take our brand new baby to that market in a bugaboo stroller and parade down the single aisle as part of our family weekend ritual. I would be wearing checkered Bermuda shorts, leather sandals, and aviator sunglasses, and a pork pie hat would conceal my morning bed head hair, adding to my funky hipster tattooed dad look. We would attempt to shop, but it would be difficult because everyone we encountered would interrupt us to ogle our darling child and remark on the momentous occasion of our exceptional family. <laughs> we would nod in gratitude, radiating pride, and manage somehow to settle on pluots and Casablanca lilies before onlookers began to tread too heavily on our privacy. <laughs> My desire for a child had grown into a tender ache to the degree that being around our friends' children became punishing. After three years of discussion and heated contemplation, we took the plunge. And so it began. There was an absurd amount of information to absorb and tasks to complete, interviews, physicals, fingerprint scans, criminal background checks, and endless paperwork. We didn't mind. Only a few months into the process, we got a call from a potential birth mother. She was due in six weeks. She asked if we were sure we wanted a child, and I told her, yes, more than anything in the world, this child will be the most important thing in our lives above all else forever. She said, 
No one had said that before. And then she said, I choose you and Danny to be the parents of this child. And so it really began. Strangers one day forever tied the next. We entered into an alliance more profound than we had ever known. She left everything familiar and traveled to Los Angeles in the care of two nervous daddy wannabe outsiders. We escorted her to a series of meetings with our adoption attorney and social worker and then to our obstetrician who examined her with worthy respect. Her tummy was jellied and the sonogram wand was rolled gently across her. Danny and I gaped at the monitor, glued to each other as we saw for the first time the tiny living being smushed and somehow levitating, all in vivid black and white. Our child, it had long fingers and ample lips and a nose and everything. Looks perfect and healthy, our OB reported. He turned to our birth mother and asked, would you like to know the sex or should I tell Sam and Danny privately? I can know, she murmured. Danny grabbed my hand. We held our breath and waited in an interminable pause reminiscent of key moments on reality shows. I could feel the camera cut from me to Danny to me to Danny to me to the doctor to her to Danny to me to the doctor to her to me to Danny. I heard anticipatory underscoring and feared we would go to commercial. Then the doctor looked to me and Danny and said, Gentlemen, you're having a boy. And so it really, really began. We rented a house for her near our own, and for the next six weeks, our single purpose was to keep this woman happy. We bought maternity clothes and trinkets, and I made mountains of mac and cheese and baked brownies and gave foot massages and rubbed belly butter on her swollen tummy. Whatever she, want, sh whatever she wanted, she got. And then some. I will admit that some of our indulgence was out of fear that she would change her mind or sneak away in the middle of the night, but mostly... It was out of gratitude. Near the end, when the hoops were getting drastically higher and we were frayed and drained and scared and complaining of the emotional slavery of our situation, a friend pointed out, this is your labor. It became our mantra. Our son was due the second week of April. At the beginning of the month, the phone rang in the early evening. This is it, she said. I'm having really painful contractions and we need to go now. We had rehearsed this moment a dozen times and had arrived and arrived at her house in less than three minutes. We burst in the door, but she was nowhere to be seen. The TV was blaring from the next room and we rushed in, calling out her name. She was lying back comfortably on the bed, noshing from a bag of chips and slurping a milkshake, grinning from ear to ear, dimples dimped. April Fool's, she screamed, and the jumble of her upswept hair danced with her naughty laugh. I tasted blood in my mouth and realized I'd bitten the inside of my cheek and was still clenching. Danny and I glanced at each other, smiling through the impact. My heart pounded and I knew I was going to cry. Instead, I offered a toothy, blood-stained grin thought to regulate my breath and said, oh, that's good. You really got us. You, you, are, you are so funny. This is your labor. This is your labor. This is your freaking fucking labor. <laughs> On April 7th, 
2008, we stood by her side as she pushed, focused, and present throughout the delivery. When our son was lifted into the air, covered in vernix and blood, squeaking and gasping his way into this strange new world, our entire relationship with our birth mother had culminated in and was defined by this single instant of polar opposites. At the exact same moment that we wanted to jump through to the roof in celebration, she stared silently at the ceiling in mourning. Our greatest gift was her greatest loss. In the same room, at the same time, respect was paid to both. That's what the entire six weeks had been, a balance of respect. She had requested that the baby be placed on her chest so that she could have a private moment with him. She held our son, her son, our son, gazing at him as a mother does. Then she took a deep breath and looked up and out at nothing in particular. Her jaw clenched and we watched her attempt to disengage. Her dark eyes darted to mine for a split second and I knew that it was time. Danny and I walked to her bedside and she lifted our little baby boy ever so slightly to meet my arms, her stare remaining fixed ahead. I cradled his tiny, swaddled body against my chest and Danny and I backed out of the room whispering, thank you, thank you, thank you. Danny and I and Cooper, Atticus, Harris, Jacobson spent our first night together at the hospital. The Atticus was for Atticus Finch, my favorite literary character, in an attempt to imbue him with a sense of moral obligation. <laughs> but the four-name names sounded more like a law firm. <laughs> in the following days and weeks, our families visited to welcome our son, and my parents were more joyous than I had ever seen them. There was a bond between us that hadn't, couldn't have existed before. One late night when Cooper was sleeping between feedings and the house was uncommonly quiet, I found my father on the balcony weeping. Are you okay? I asked. He said, I never knew. Never knew what? I watch you and Danny and the way that you look at Cooper and the way you are with him, feeding him and changing him and being up all night, the way you hold him and I know what's coming and how fast it goes. And I missed it. I wasn't there for you or your brother or your mother. I'm sorry, I just, I wasn't there. You're a good person, Sam, a good man. And you're going to be a good father. A better father than I was. I held him close for a, mo for a moment as if I was the father and he was the son. My father was now a different man that I'd known growing up. The man who believed his role was to provide hoops of expectation to be jumped through, who told me life was a bowl of shit when I was five years old, was gone. Before me stood a man human and accessible, with a loving and heavy heart, who had found peace with himself, with me, at last. A month later, when the last visitors had departed and Danny and I were attempting to settle into our new life, Cooper was given the pediatric thumbs up to go into public places. It was time to make my fantasy a memory. <laughs> 
With an excitement that exceeded any pre-show buzz I'd ever known, I dressed in my Bermuda shorts, my pork pie hat, sandals, and aviator sunglasses, rolled up my sleeves enough to certify tattoos, and our brand new threesome headed to the neighborhood farmer's market. The summer sky was blue and uncomplicated. The air spoke of recently plucked rosemary and the clean, yeasty scent of freshly baked brioche. I shifted the diaper bag on my shoulder as we entered the thoroughfare, pushing Cooper in his hybrid stroller, but leaving his face completely visible so awestruck onlookers wouldn't have to rubberneck. As usual, underscoring accompanied the event in my head, and this time the music was majestic and sweeping. We strutted slowly and deliberately as I feigned casual, but I nearly bestowed a royal wave when the strings entered. Only, no one gave us a second look. Not a single glance. My great fantasy was shattered in an instant. But in the next, I realized that what was actually happening was much more breathtaking and historical than any fantasy. Two dads pushing their child in a stroller at a market on a Saturday morning was simply no big deal. And so it really, really, really began. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Questions? Yes. I, I could ask this somewhere else. But ask it publicly. Thank you, Rick. I do wonder how does this message get received when you take it to places that aren't so You know, it's amazing. It's been incredible because uh, we are in a time of an avalanche of evolvement. Even in the places, I'm from Oklahoma. I just did the show. The show ham is funny, funny, but it goes to some of these places. And even in Oklahoma, the, these literally reddest state in the country. You know, three weeks ago, a judge uh, contested the ban on uh, marriage equality because it's unconstitutional. And to be a living sort of breathing model of look, you too can have this, <laughs> feels really uh, great. Not that I'm important, but to be able to sort of document through humor and pathos and firsthand experience, something that is happening is embraced. Um, actually more so in some other places because here it is no big deal. You know? So, uh, but uh, I find that all, I'm a storyteller. Whether I'm singing a song or writing a song or writing a book, whatever, I'm a storyteller. And what are we as storytellers? We're some people who hopefully reflect a little, that our own experience rex reflects a little of humanity to someone. So hopefully it's accessible to people who would not be in my small little specifics of my showbiz and gay world, which is not gay or show business. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone have any questions? 
Why? Why? No. Yes. What are the dates of your theatrical event? Will it, be? it will. It is March 22nd and 23rd at the Renberg Theater um, in Hollywood, and um, I hope you come. You. It's not. <laughs> you Google the Sam Harris ham at the Renberg Theater and find out. I don't know. I don't know. But if they're, they're, I know they're on sale. Both, are they both 8 o'clock, sorry? I don't remember. That's okay. And it's a Saturday and a Sunday, and I think that oh, might be a, Sunday might be earlier. Anyway, I'm not. Good. Yes, sir. Have you always written, and what's your process? I've always written, but never, uh, I've always written uh, plays, and I've written for television, and I've written for my concert stuff, which always had a lot of comic monologue, and I've written for some other things, uh, other people's. But um, the idea of a book sounded really large to me. And my friend Frank Langella, who had put out a book uh, in 2012, had written a few short things and said, you just need to be doing this without expectation. Just do it. Just do it. Not what it's supposed to be. Just do it. And I started writing. Um, and I wrote non-chronologically as well. I'm a really fast writer. But you have to wrench it from my hands, because I like to tweak forever. Um, so, uh, but I love the process. I love, I love, I have such admiration for uh, writing, the craft of it, the rhythm of it. It's like a different kind of music. And so, you know, uh, uh, finding your voice, which I've had on stage for a while, but to be able to do this and put it into this and hopefully that the voice carries is uh, part of what I'm, I'm hoping happens. <clears throat> yes? Cooper is now five and a half years old. And we're having dinner in a little while just down the street. <laughs> yes, sir. Regardless of the area of life, when was the last time you changed your opinion from, of anything from one to the antithesis of it? That changed my opinion? Yeah, on anything. Yeah, we have perceptions. Absolutely. Um, I think my opinion is always changing uh, from more information that I get. I mean, there are certain basics, beliefs that I have, but something that I try to teach my son. Have you ever had a perception that you thought was correct and you find out you couldn't be more wrong? Oh, yeah. And the opposite, too. Have you ever perceived something to be not correct and it turns out to be brilliant? Uh, yes, I think it's that's. I think are here. We're here, sort of, as students. Yes, and I try to. As I was saying, I was trying to teach my son, give him lots of options, expose him to everything. There is no right way. There is no wrong way. And having grown up in a place where there was one way, one religion, one everything, I knew intrinsically that that was not the way that I could live my life, and have spent probably most of my life trying to prove that life is not a bowl of shit. Um, that I pretty much will not change. <clears throat> Thank you guys so I am signing books. Let's do it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.